This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to another edition of the Did You Read podcast, when the Times opinion team comes together to discuss some of the issues of the week. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by Daniel Finkelstein, Alice Thompson and Matthew Paris. The Conservative and Liberal Democrats spent days and much political energy on the coalition agreement, its marriage contract, if you like. Now they must do the same on a divorce agreement, protocol for the last year of office and the conduct of a general election. My aunt, who died this week, and her husband were both schizophrenic. She was a fascinating woman, but struggled to find the support she needed to make a success out of life. She met my uncle in an institution, then they were both sent out to be cared for in the community. Neither worked. A third way sheltered communities might have. I've been seeing at first hand the cruelty of the don't call us, we'll call you convention, which we now seem to have in our human resources sector. They never tell you that you didn't get the job. My nephew wants a career as an actor and is staying with me while he auditions. He waits and waits and never hears anything. Why not? Modern IT makes it effortless. To change the rules would save more misery for more young citizens than any other easy cultural change I can think of. Well, Danny, your topic uh, first. And um, we are all incredibly familiar with the coalition agreement that brought the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives together uh, at the start of this parliament. And I think I certainly have been largely surprised by how much the parties have tried to stick with it. There hasn't been a a rewriting of it. You're looking forward, though, now to, in the Wednesday column you write in The Times, to what is a 15-, 18-month process now where the two parties start detaching themselves from focusing on government and (coughs) focusing on the next election. And you think there should be some kind of agreement to govern this detachment? Well, look, in the last week, we've been having a crash course in how the Liberal Democrats really work, the way that they're incredibly formal about their rules and they can't do anything without a vote of the Scottish Federal Policy Executive or whatever body it happens to be. All in the context of the Renard Affair. Uh, All in the context of the Renard Affair. And um, I think that uh, the, the... coalition agreement works, partly because once human beings write things down, they tend to be committed to them, but partly because the Liberal Democrats are especially like that. 
I worry now about the uh, coalition's future, not because it'll break apart, but because it'll stick together and doesn't know quite how to do that. In the last six months, uh, they have got no agreement at the moment about how they're going to deal with all the discussions they had in government, who's going to support the good things that they did, uh, rather than just argue about the errors. Um, What is it that they're going to agree one party contributed rather than the other? Um, Some of these things may be beyond agreement. I think others of them could be subject to some sort of reasonable protocol. And the great thing about the Liberal Democrats is that once they've done that, they will stick to it. And there's a there's an article in the Daily Telegraph and um, by Ben Brogan that is actually he hints that the Tories now think the Liberal Democrats are largely a spent force that they are going to be defeated very badly in Northern Scottish urban seats where they face uh, Labour and that the Tories will probably get the upper hand of them in the southwestern rural seats and that it really is just a Labour Tory fight the next general election in which the Lib Dems will be eclipsed. If that's right. Isn't the Tory strategy just to ignore the Liberal Democrats? Well, even if it is right, if the, if there's no protocol in the last six months, the two parties will fill the newspapers with stories, revelations about what happened during their period of government, all negative. Mm-hmm. Things that we didn't know about before, rows that we didn't realise had taken place, papers we didn't realise had been written, proposals we didn't realise had been put on the table. Uh, and all of those things will, will startle, amuse, entertain all the political press. See, if the Conservative Party really wants to fight Labour, it has to be sure that its election campaign isn't actually against the Liberal Democrats. Matthew Paris, is, is any agreement going to possibly stop all these sorts of things coming out? No, I, I, I think you're both, in a sense, you both know too much. You're talking too much like political insiders. From the public's point of view, anyone inclined to vote Conservative or Liberal Democrat likes the coalition. They think it's been a good thing. And for both parties now to spend a year slowly falling out, criticising, differentiating, speaking as though it wouldn't be possible for them to get together again after the next election, I, 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 I think would dismay a lot of the coalition's natural support. In I just so disagree with that, Matthew, in the sense if you look at an Ipsos Mori poll just, I think, last week, it said that 70%, an increasing number of the British people, have not enjoyed the experience of coalition government. A, a poll that ICM did for The Guardian just over Christmas, the number one reason why the British people don't like politicians is broken promises, which, no. of course, coalition institutionalizes. People will always say that. They won't, that people won't enjoy any any government. Uh, a, a more interesting uh, finding of that poll is that amongst conservative supporters, there's a huge amount of support for the coalition. Just, George, I think... Uh, <laughs> Alice Thompson. So just, and, then, and then we'll get you coming back, Danny. I think there's a bizarre paradox in that the worse the Liberal Democrats do and the more Nick Clegg flounders round and round... Weirdly, the more he's needed by the Tories in a bizarre way. So I think that's what the party find difficult now in the Tories is that every time David Cameron is asked by Nick Clegg to do something, he does it. He keeps rolling over and you find that the MPs and people in the country, that's, that's what the real Tories get worried about is that we're giving too many concessions, they feel, to you know, Nick Clegg and what he does. And they can't understand it because he doesn't seem to be doing very well and he's not going to do very well in the election. But it is because David Cameron is pretty convinced, I think, that he's going to have to go into a coalition and he is doing a sort of quasi agreement without us really understanding what's going on. 
I'm abashed. I think Matthew, um, um, I must have explained myself wrong. I, I, I don't. I mean, almost precisely the opposite of what you think. I mean, I don't mean that the the coalition should spend the next year uh, breaking up. I mean, the the coalition's got to have an agreement about an orderly uh, dissolution, which is going to happen at the general election, uh, and it therefore needs to ensure that it defends the good things that it did and doesn't actually just break into pieces, um, arguing with each other all the way to the ballot box. And and in order to do that, it needs an agreement as comprehensive as the one that brought it into being, because that's how the Liberal Democrats work, and in its absence uh, and that's actually how human beings work too and in its absence, they just will fill the newspapers with argument and, and discussion, we can see that about the, the disagreements they're going to have about the agreement <laughs> and that's going to be a nightmare, it's going to be <laughs> like a really messy yeah. divorce with everyone hearing about the divorce Will it, will it, be, be, a, the will it be a public document Danny, will it involve Tory MPs as well as ministers and, and has it existed in other countries, what, 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 tell us a little bit more now about the nature of this contract? Well, <coughs> I, th- I think you could... Um, I don't know for certain how that would be done. Um, I think that they almost certainly will need to make it public just because that's the nature of, uh, of this. They're going to have these rows, and the question is whether when they have them. Um, in other countries, there's much more of a an acceptance that coalitions exist. These have all happened before. So custom and practice deals with the problems that I'm outlining. They accept they're going to be in another coalition. You know, if you look at game theory, basically people row with each other uh, unless they believe there's going to be a repetitive relationship. Um, once we get into coalitions that happen all the time, people will accept their, co- their, their repetitive relationship. They'll use the precedents that were set last time. But we don't have any precedents. Uh, of course, there, there will be some disagreements over the document itself and how it's been created, but at least it will be done on some sort of reasonable, thought-through basis with both parties trying to enter into it in order to gain something uh, for both. So, so Matthew Paris, Alice says that she thinks that David Cameron is giving Nick Clegg a lot of what he wants at the moment because he suspects that there will be another coalition. Is is that your expectation? And is that also your... You were very positive about coalition a few minutes ago. Is that also actually what you think might be sensible, a, yes, a Conservative yeah. Party tamed, perhaps in your view, by liberalism. The two results that I'd be happy with would either be an overwhelming Conservative majority, so that uh, David Cameron wasn't at the mercy of the Tory right, or it would which be... Which is a, unlikely. Or, which is unlikely, or <laughs> it would be another coalition. But we, we can all speculate and talk till the cows come home about this. But what the, what the public want to see is the coalition government simply soldiering on, getting on with governing right up to the general election, not talking about tactics, strategies, divorces, marriages or anything else. But I think um, Danny's idea is that this divorce agreement I mean, will ha- help them be focused on that and not be distracted by it too much. I mean, that's not even... The, 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 the fact is... Of course, that's what it should be doing, but it's not what's going to happen. Uh, so the question is whether or not it plans the next period in order to ensure precisely that it spends as much time as possible governing and agreeing and as little time as possible rowing, uh, or it can just allow um, you know, nature to take its course, and it will not go the way that you think it will. They will just have a very poor last nine months. Alice Thompson, let's move on to... Our second topic, which is, is is your topic. The subject, of course, Nick Clegg wanted to be talking about this week. It wasn't uh, the, the Renard um, sex um, allegations, but um, the whole issue of mental health and the fact that Britain does not have the kind of mental health system that it, a, a first world nation should have. And 
you've written about this in For the Times and from quite direct personal experience. Well, my aunt died this week and she was schizophrenic and she met my uncle who was also schizophrenic in an institution. And in some ways, they loathed the institution and they hit back against it and there was nothing to do and they, they found it very difficult to operate within such an institutionalised system. But on the other hand, they met each other. They met quite a lot of their friends there and my uncle learnt how to draw and my aunt had a whole library to read from. And although they were institutionalised, we were all institutionalised to a certain extent and it was almost like a job in some ways for them. And then when they went into care of the community, they were given a house and at the beginning it worked, but it soon disintegrated and it's very difficult for them to keep taking their drugs and they had different care workers every day. And then when my uncle died... Um, she was very, very lonely, I think. I mean, we could all go and visit, but she was on her own in Cambridge. She didn't see people for days on end. She lived with her dog, but then her dog, you know, she found it very difficult to cope with the dog. The neighbours didn't really want to talk to her. She threatened one of the care workers with a plastic gun, and that was it, really. After that, no one would go and see her. Um, and she was rather an extraordinary woman. She was sort of six foot two. She had bright orange hair. She was incredibly clever. Um, but she just found life very, very difficult. And in the end, she really, really wanted to die. And when they took her into hospital, she had the best last three weeks of her life, she said, because she had a party. And actually, the hospital funny, were very, very kind to her. And mm. she bought in chocolates. And you know, they, she actually really enjoyed her last Christmas. And it made me feel very bad. And I thought, actually, there is, must be a way that we can work out where you don't have to institutionalise people completely, but also they're not just left to fend for themselves. And... Successive governments say they're going to do something. Ed Miliband said he was going to do something. Nick Clegg says he's going to do something. And we never, ever do anything about these people. Uh, 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 and why is that? Is it, is it a lack of focus? Is it a lack of money? Is it... Because you, you, you propose stigma. some sort of halfway house of mm. not institutionalised care or... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Care in the community, but sheltered communities of some kind. I think that? you do need more sheltered communities. They have got some, but they were very much frowned upon for the last 20 years as being not politically correct and that people shouldn't be in them. And I think it's particularly in old age when you have dementia and Alzheimer's, I think you do need places where people can go because it's very hard to get people into care homes if they have got dementia and Alzheimer's because care homes have a sort of very strict structure of who they want yeah. and who they don't, and they're right down in the pecking order. And it, you just need to look after them all. But the problem is there's such a stigma about talking about it. And I know that because my family never did talk about it. And we have a lot of schizophrenia in our family. But you know, this is the first time I've really been able to write about it openly because we were all worried about mentioning the subject before. M Matthew Paris. How about family? Did, did family rally around your 
uncle and aunt? Well, the problem was that people would go and visit once a week or once a month. Or, In fact, the person, weirdly, who was kindest was the solicitor because she would quite often book herself these cruises and then she'd have to be got out of the cruises, but she didn't realise. And there was a time when she bought a canary and then she cut off the label, but she cut off its leg. And it was the solicitor, actually, who rather wonderfully came in and out and helped her out. And actually, the nuns were very nice to her. But and we all felt very guilty. We didn't have more time. And I think probably 50 years ago we would have, but because we were all so busy... And everyone lives in such disparate areas. We probably did. You know, she probably had a visitor twice a week, three times a week. But the rest of the time, she was totally on her own. Uh, Daniel Finkelstein, was the problem the uh, whole idea of community care? Or was it more that resources were never put into uh, well, the, <coughs> the support so that Alice's aunt, for example, seems like support wasn't there in the quantity that it might have been. Is, was that the problem rather I mean, than the idea of community care in care itself? Care in community is associated with a, a sort of right-wing idea related to cuts, but in fact it originated as a left-wing idea related to personal liberation. Mm. Um, the problem isn't caring for people outside institutions. The problem is with the word community. In order for care to be in the community, there has to be a community to care. Uh, and communities don't really exist without institutions. You do, I think, Alice is correct, have to have some sort of clear institutional idea of what you mean by community. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I'm looking very much forward to reading about this. It's very moving to hear about it um, and just to hear the story, really. But um, uh, I think, I think uh, Alice's idea sounds, you know, on first blush intuitively the right one, that there must be uh, a role between complete institutionalisation and care that's really not in the community. In other words, one must make a reality of the idea of care in the community. Matthew. I don't think I can think of any more successful or, or, or you might, might say disreputable example of a brutal policy uh, being sold, marketed, but beneath the banner uh, of, of a name, of a phrase that it was almost impossible to resist. I, I was a Conservative MP when care in the community came in and it was quite plain to all of us that it was a way of saving money by closing down expensive institutions. But it was so hard to be against the idea of care in the, the community. It, 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 I'm afraid a rather unpleasant example of what political marketing can do. But the, the, these great old institutions, they were not often as good as perhaps we remember no. them now. Well, some a of lot them were, because I worked as a cleaner in one when I was in my teens, um, just because it was across the river from us. So I would, I would literally go across the river and work there. And they were actually rather wonderful, some of the better ones, because as, as they progressed, they weren't what we're imagining as sort of 19th century institutions. This one was called Fairmile in Oxfordshire. And it did have one very high-risk unit, which I never saw, so I don't know what happened. But there they had a garden... And they had quite a lot of things to do, a woodwork place. And it was more like a school, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But it was what they were treated very well. I looked after one patient who was German. So I learned a lot of German from her. Funny, She taught me my A-level German. She was rather fantastic. And I think there was a whole community around them and the doctors helped. And when it closed, actually, everyone was rather upset because it had supported everyone in the community rather bizarrely, as well as the institution. So it had moved out. All of the articles that we've been discussing on this podcast today can be read on the Times' website and uh, do uh, encourage you to go uh, to that. Um, our third topic, uh, we go from 
Alice's aunt, <laughs> to Matthew's uh, nephew. Now you've got a <laughs> lodger in your ho- London home at the moment, Matthew, your your nephew, and he's wanting a career in the uh, in the theatre, going to lots of auditions and. His experience is not a happy one. Well, lodger's a nice word. He's just dossing there, really, but in the (laughs) nicest possible sort of way. It's just I'm seeing at first hand what must be the experience of young people all over Britain who who are looking for jobs and auditioning for roles in plays is a way of looking for jobs. I suppose I always knew that on the whole, when a job is advertised... Uh, you apply and you don't expect to hear unless you've got it or you don't expect to uh, get an invitation. You either get an invitation for an interview or you assume that they weren't interested. And that has been what you might call the human resources culture in Britain, I think, for all my life. But I've never really thought about how much pain that gives people because you write off, you apply, you telephone, you email, and you just don't know whether... People have had a response. Uh, people have, uh, have got your application. You don't know how it has been dealt with. Now, in the past, when everything was done by post, it probably would have been very difficult for a personnel manager to write individually to everyone who had applied to say you didn't get an interview, you haven't got the job. But with IT now, it, it would be so simple. People are not wanting sympathy. They're not wanting help or support, uh, expressions of regret. They just want to know quite quickly whether their application is going anywhere or not and it would be so easy to organise that. We just need a change of culture in in human resources. It works both ways in a way, though, does it? In a sense, IT makes it easier to reply but it also means that probably employers are inundated with many more applications because it's much more easier to email in applications and CVs and they may be overwhelmed in a different way than when you had to send in a proper letter in a with a stamp and yeah, that's, that's probably true. But but uh, uh, my keyboard skills uh, and, and software skills or whatever are, are not immense. But I think all you need to do is make a list and 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 press one button, and everybody on that list gets a standard form emails. Sorry, your application has not been successful on this occasion. It so you're not looking for them to give feedback to people, tell them why their application wasn't successful. You, you, you just want basic courtesy. People just want to know, that's all. Yeah. Do you think it started off, though, because people didn't want to get a rejection letter? So the idea of a rejection letter was so depressing that they thought maybe it's just easy to do nothing. I'm surprised that you you think it isn't standard. I mean, you know, I've... I've uh, um, offered various jobs and had uh, people o- applying for them, and I've always um, replied to everyone at least to tell them that they, they, you know, we're not going any further. I don't think you can start to explain to them why, because you get yourself into all sorts of trouble doing that. But you send a letter, and I, I you know, I saw the other day some somebody had written a spoof uh, letter on the internet saying, um, you know, dear sir, thank you for your uh, rejection letter. I'm afraid it hasn't been successful at this time. <laughs> I, as you imagine, I've received many such letters, and I cannot possibly consider them all, so I will be t- attending work on Monday. <laughs> there's a... There's a <laughs> in Tuesday's Times, there's a lovely notebook from Oliver Cam, and in there, that actually some advice for you, Daniel Finkelstein. Um, Oliver quotes from the 110 rules of civility and decent behaviour in company and conversation from a couple of hundred years ago, I think, in America, and his advice to 
Philip Collins and Daniel Finkelstein, who sit opposite me in the office, is, in the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. Are, are you guilty of this? Drumming with my feet is what I'm <laughs> sure he's getting at. Um, and uh, I, it's an interesting thing, because what it indicates, uh, a little bit like Daniel Kahneman finds with his advice on social psychology, is that you can proffer such advice, but it's almost impossible to accept it. So despite the fact that my mother read this out to me on the phone this morning, so I was fully aware of it, uh, I, um, <coughs> I don't think it'll stop me from drumming my feet. The, the, the wider point about Oliver Cam's note, but and of course Matthew Paris's uh, uh, whole topic is, are we becoming less mannered as a society? Are we becoming less courteous? Oliver's uh, view is that we're not. Um, and in respect, you know, for minorities, for example, women, and that society has made huge advances. Where, where, where do you stand, Alice? Thompson well, I think on after this. Lord Reynard, it, it, it does show a point that we don't have doors open for us now. People don't pick up your luggage. They don't do that sort of thing. But on the other hand, you're not having your bottom pinched. And I think if we're going to choose between the two, I'd prefer to be able to open my own doors in the end. And I yeah, think actually yeah. we have, we think Can't we have now. both? Well, I think, <laughs> I'm not sure. I do think we think more about now how other people might feel if we say something that's unkind or... We, we don't stigmatise people as much if we can. And, and I think thinking about other people probably is the basis of all good manners, isn't it? The, the great truth, Matthew Barris, is a lot of Conservatives, uh, with a small C, perhaps big C, have slated political correctness over the years. But in a way, political correctness is really just politeness, isn't it? It's just courtesy. And the Victorians had their own versions of political correctness. And there may even have been a time when covering up the legs of a piano was a kind of political uh, correctness. Uh, no society has its conventions and on the whole those conventions have always included the idea that you you shouldn't give gratuitous offense but what gives gratuitous offense has changed quite a, a lot I, I i would never have minded having my bottom pinched i rather <laughs> wish i had had my bottom <laughs> pinched when i was younger it wouldn't have given me a, any offense at all you'd I mean, always say please stop pinching my bottom <laughs> pinch. you know, I just don't see the problem. There. Have you ever had your bottom pinched, uh, Daniel? <laughs> it's never arisen, this problem. Uh, it's interesting uh, to hear. But um, I, I, I think that actually we have moved away from a formalised idea of manners uh, because those sorts of manners almost took the place of yes. uh, the courtesy and tolerance and empathy, which has now become standard. Uh, I think we are just... We just know much more about other people. And people who used to be uh, strangers to us are, are becoming more familiar. I think that um, television and the internet are civilizing things. Um, they'll create less wars. Um, they'll create more uh, bigger communities. And they'll have more understanding between individuals. And funnily enough, they'll also create less manners. It's not necessary to have a formalized set of rules uh, in order to ensure that we behave in an appropriate way. We, we are I'm beginning to understand that more intuitively. So I suppose the kind of more uh, almost false written down uh, books yes. of manners are becoming uh, less important. Yeah, a hundred years ago, a little boy or girl who asked what the reason for some stipulation of good manners was would have been given a slap. It's not a matter of reason, young man. You just do it. Mm. Uh, as Danny says, if these days we're asking what the reason for manners is then the manners are becoming more real. Yeah, well, I think that's a good positive note to end uh, this week's uh, podcast. Danny, Alice, Matthew, thank you very much. And thank you also to my producer, uh, Dave McGuire. All of the articles that we've discussed in today's podcast can be accessed by Time subscribers 
at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. Until next week. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.